Success has many fathers, and many people can lay claim to the first rock and roll song. Was it Chuck Berry's Maybelline in 1955? Or Elvis singing That's Alright in 1954? Maybe you have to go back to Ike Turner's Rocket 88 in 1951. For my money, the moment lightning struck, the moment a style of music came into being that wasn't rhythm and blues, wasn't rockabilly, was something entirely new. It came when a struggling gospel singer was working out a raunchy high-energy number for his nightclub act. The drummer couldn't play the intro right. The singer made him play it again and play it again until finally in frustration, he just shouted the drum part at him. A wop bop loo bop a wop bam boom That was the moment everything changed. That was the moment something new came into being that we called rock and roll, which makes me wonder... Why, 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 why is this not a movie? Hello and welcome to Why Is This Not a Movie, the podcast where we look at a book or a moment in history or a story we can rip from the headlines and ask Hollywood why no one's ever put it onto the big screen. I'm Mike Vago, author and regular contributor to the AV Club, and this week's idea is about the invention of rock and roll. And as far as I'm concerned, the person who invented it was Little Richard, who passed away back on May 9th. And just to note before we go any further, there's nothing I'd love more than to play you some Little Richard, but podcasting has some extremely stringent rules on using other people's music. Because this can be heard in any country in the world, I have to abide by every single country's copyright rules. The easiest way to do that is to not use copyrighted music, which is why our theme song is a poorly sung, poorly recorded uh, ditty that I made up myself. We can, however, talk about Little Richard's lyrics, so let's start with Tutti Frutti. In 1955, Little Richard had already recorded several gospel singers and a slow blues number every hour, which was a hit. But that was his only hit. He'd been dropped from his label, he was broke, working as a dishwasher, playing in CD nightclubs to keep his career going. In sharp contrast to the church music Richard grew up on, nightclub audiences liked it raunchy, and Richard rose to the challenge. He wrote an ode to gay sex, Tutti Frutti, Good Booty, If It Don't Fit, Don't Force It, You Can Grease It, Make It Easy, If It's Tight, It's All Right. For obvious reasons, that song wasn't on the demo he sent to Specialty Records in 1955. When the label brought him in for an audition, with Fats Domino's backing band behind him, Richard felt like his tamer material wasn't really capturing the energy of his live show, and he could tell that what he was doing wasn't winning over the label. So he tried running the band through Tutti Frutti, the drummer kept flubbing the intro, and that's the moment where lightning struck. The label was wowed by his high-energy performance, but they knew the lyrics had to go. They brought in a co-writer, Dorothy Labostri, to tone down the lyrics, and suddenly Richard had a girl named Sue and a girl named Daisy, and the chorus became Tutti Frutti Ah Rudy, which was slang at the time that basically meant all right. From then on, Richard's sexuality stayed out of his lyrics, which often meant instead of putting himself at the center of the action, he'd report on the antics of Miss Molly or Long Tall Sally at a remove. But let's just take a minute to appreciate this. Little Richard was a flamboyant, gay, pro-integration black man at a time when you could be straight up murdered for being any one of those things. And yet from the moment Tutti Frutti hit the airwaves, America loved him. The Tutti Frutti session was also an important moment because it introduced Richard to Robert Bumps Blackwell, who produced his best work and co-wrote Long Tall Sally, Rip It Up, Ready Teddy, and Good Golly Miss Molly, either with Richard or songwriter John Mariscalco. So if we're telling the story on the big screen, we have our star, we have our mentor figure, we have one of the key scenes in any music biopic, the moment when the magic happens. There's only one part of a larger story, so let's start at the beginning. Richard Penniman grew up in Macon, Georgia during the Depression. His father, Bud Penniman, was a deacon who also sold moonshine and owned a nightclub. As we'll see, little Richard has a lifelong struggle between those two poles of the church and the music of salvation and the nightclub and the devil's music, and that dichotomy is there from the very beginning. But he starts with the church. His whole family was strongly religious, moonshine and nightclubs aside, and they forbade R&B and the blues, but they did encourage Richard to sing in the church. His parents already called him Little Richard because he was skinny, but the congregation called him Warhawk because he could sing so loud. So maybe we do the typical biopic thing of casting a younger actor for a few childhood scenes where little Warhawk impresses the church, or maybe we skip ahead to high school when the real drama of the story starts, for good and for bad. At the same time Little Richard was meeting his musical heroes and finding his path towards music, tension with his family was also hitting a peak. Richard knew from a young age he was gay, and he was often teased for being effeminate. 
His father caught Richard wearing his mother's clothing and their makeup and punished him severely. When Richard was 15, his father threw him out of the house for good. But before that happened, Richard had met Sister Rosetta Tharp. Tharp was a popular gospel singer in the 30s and 40s, but her songs had a churning rhythm that laid the foundations for rock and roll in the 50s, as surely as Clyde Stubblefield's drumming for James Brown in the 70s laid the groundwork for hip-hop in the 80s. When Tharp came to Macon in 1947, Richard was already working at the venue selling soda pop during concerts as a high school job. Tharp heard Richard singing her songs outside the venue and invited him to open up for her that night. She was so impressed that she paid him, and from that moment his mind was made up to be a professional musician. So when Richard was thrown out of the house, he joined the Chitlin circuit, singing the secular music his parents had forbidden, sometimes in drag, sometimes not. He played alongside Billy Wright, a popular gospel and blues singer who was openly gay even back then, and a flamboyant performer on stage. With Wright's blessing, Richard began copying his style, flashy clothes, a pompadour, a pencil-thin mustache, and heavy makeup. Richard later said the makeup put white audiences at ease, as if he looked effeminate, the men wouldn't worry about him chasing white women. He somehow managed to walk a tightrope between being not so gay that he was threatening and not being so straight he was threatening, and he managed to do it all with flair. Wright also set up Little Richard's first recording session, which led to a deal with RCA Victor. He recorded that early hit every hour, and a handful of relatively subdued gospel and blues numbers. He wasn't yet the Little Richard that would take America by storm, but he started getting better paying gigs, he started getting respect, most importantly from his father. The relationship began to thaw, and Bud Pennyman even put every hour on the jukebox in his club. Now, if you're writing a movie, you often build up your hero just to knock him back down again. And sometimes in a biopic, you fudge the story a little bit just to get that effect. But real life does it all for us. Richard's label drops him when he can't produce a follow-up hit. And only a few weeks after that, his father's killed in an altercation outside the club. It was the lowest point in Richard's life. As he's mourning his father, he's also losing gigs, going broke, and taking a job as a dishwasher, wondering if his music career is ever coming back. But that low point leads right into where we started with Tutti Frutti and his career catching fire. So what's next? We have one advantage here versus other musician biopics, which tend to have to use the artist's big hits as signposts throughout the story, which can sometimes kill the flow of a story if every 10 minutes you have to put on the brakes because now Rhinestone Cowboy is all over the radio. But you can get that out of the way all at once with Little Richard because all of his biggest hits came right in a row after Tutti Frutti. Between October 1955 and January 1958, just two years and three months, Little Richard had 15 top 10 hits on the R&B charts, three of which broke through to top 10 on the pop charts. He also appeared in three movies that would later be called Rocksploitation, B-movies quickly churned out to capitalize on the new fad of rock and roll. He sang the title song to Jane Mansfield's vehicle, The Girl Can't Help It, and performed on screen in Don't Knock the Rock and Mr. Rock and Roll. Now at this point in a lot of movies, our heroes on top of the world, but drugs and alcohol bring it all crashing down. But at this point in his life, Richard didn't drink, and he fired band members who used drugs. His fall from stardom came from an unexpected twist no screenwriter could have come up with. In 1957, at the peak of his popularity, Little Richard's on a world tour. He's performing an outdoor concert in Sydney, Australia, when he saw bright light streaking across the sky. He took it as a sign from God. He decided on the spot to stop performing secular music and devote himself to the Lord. He immediately canceled the rest of the tour despite losing a ton of money, but the flight he would have taken to his next gig crashed into the Pacific Ocean. That was all the evidence he needed of divine intervention. The light in the sky was in fact the launch of Sputnik, but even after learning that, Richard was unmoved. He enrolled in the seminary, he started touring again, but this time as a preacher. Determined to walk the straight and narrow, he married Ernestine Campbell, who he met at an evangelical convention in 1959, they would get a divorce four years later. He went back into the studio but returned to gospel music, scoring minor hits with He's Not Just a Soldier, Crying in the Chapel, and He Got What He Wanted. It was only three years before the devil's music would tempt Little Richard again. While his career as a hitmaker in the U.S. was effectively over, his old records were still selling in Europe, and a promoter convinced him to tour. Audiences went wild, and he remained a huge touring act well into the 1970s. Except this time, we do get the expected nightmares to send into booze and pills. He started using cocaine in 1970, soon added PCP and heroin to the mix. In 1977, he cleaned up, quit music again, became a minister. 
He officiated weddings and sold a Black Heritage Bible, which focused on figures in the good book with African ancestry. So just step back a minute and imagine that scene in the movie. A young couple's getting married. The church tells them Reverend Penman's available to the service, and little Richard shows up to say their vows. We get our happy ending in 1985, when Charles White's biography, Quasar of Rock, sparked a renewed interest in little Richard, and he returned to music again. This time he managed to reconcile the two halves of his persona, playing spiritual music alongside his wilder hits. He was even back in the movies, playing a record producer in Down and Out in Beverly Hills, and performing Great Gosh Almighty, which he co-wrote with Billy Preston. Highs, lows, lesson learned, come back at the end, everything a music biopic needs. There's even a ton of opportunities for, as George Harrison of the Beatles, type cameos, including the actual Beatles. In the late 1950s, Richard hired a teenage Otis Redding for his backup band. When he came back to rock in 1962, he took Sam Cooke along as an opener. When Cooke left the tour, his replacement was a group of up-and-comers from Liverpool who hadn't yet recorded their first single. Richard even gave Paul McCartney vocal lessons. You can hear the results of most clearly on I'm Down. On his next tour, his openers were Bo Diddley, the Everly Brothers, and a still unknown Rolling Stones. In 1965, he took on a young guitarist named Jimi Hendrix. Depending on who you believe, either Richard fired Jimmy for being late and tried to steal the spotlight on stage, or Jimmy quit over not being paid on time. So that's our story. Let's talk about who should make it for us after this quick message. Today's episode is brought to you by Cookies. They're great. You can buy them from the store, you can get them fresh from a bakery. They're also pretty easy to make at home yourself. And when you do, you get to eat some of the dough. You can put frosting on them if you want to. You can put some ice cream in between the two of them and make your own chipwich. The thing I like to do is mix up some cookie dough, use about two-thirds of it to bake the cookies, and then use the rest of the dough to make sandwich cookies with the dough as the filling. You can also save time just by Speculoose as the filling. Have you had Speculoose? It's like peanut butter, but instead of peanuts, it's made from cookies. So cookies, they're great. You should eat some. Thanks for listening to this important announcement. Now back to the show. Okay, we're back. So who should make this movie? I feel like the director conversation has to start with Dexter Fletcher. He directed Rocket Man after also stepping in to finish Bohemian Rhapsody after Brian Singer was fired from the production. He's not only our go-to biopic director of the moment, both movies are about exuberant performers who had to hide their sexuality early on in their careers. So call me crazy, but I think we need someone else. Hiring Fletcher is a little too on the nose, and you also don't want to keep doing these things in the same person's style. The touches of surrealism Fletcher added to Rocketman were terrific, but I'm not sure that fits Little Richard or his story. I don't really want that light streaking across the sky that makes Little Richard quit music to be some whimsical movie moment. However it looks to us in 2020, it was a profoundly moving moment to Richard, and I think we need to play it down to earth. Now, if we want down to earth, I'm not sure we could do better than Barry Jenkins, who specialized in films that richly explore the black experience. Moonlight, if Beale Street could talk, and an upcoming series adaptation of Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad for Amazon. He hasn't done anything with music on screen yet, but apparently before Moonlight, he wrote a script about Stevie Wonder and time travel, which didn't get produced. I'm intensely curious about what that movie's all about, and would love to see him get it made one of these days. Why is this not a movie? So I'm sold on Barry Jenkins. Now, who do we cast in this thing? For Little Richard himself, you really need someone with the live wire energy of fifth element era Chris Tucker, but not Chris Tucker because he's 48 and Little Richard's in his 20s for most of our movie. Tyler James Williams is in his 20s, kind of looks the part and is great in everything. Everybody hates Chris, Dear White People, The Walking Dead. But he usually plays the quiet put upon every man, not exactly Little Richard's type. Caleb McLaughlin from Stranger Things could work because the show cast him out of the Broadway Lion King so we know he can sing and perform on stage. But he's still a teenager, so unless we wait 10 years to make the movie, he's too young. If we do have some scenes early on with teenage Richard and don't want to age down the lead, he's our guy, but I don't think he can carry the whole film at his age. So that leaves me with Brandon Michael Smith, who already played Little Richard in Get On Up, the 2014 James Brown biopic, so we could just cast him and get an interconnected 20th century musical legend cinematic universe going. Smith came out of the same Disney Channel kid actor factory that produced Selena Gomez, Shia LaBeouf, and Zendaya. 
He was in Gridiron Gang, Phil the Future, Sonny with a Chance, and So Random, so they kept him busy, and he's currently on the TV version of Four Weddings and a Funeral. That's a solid enough resume for an actor who's the right age to play Little Richard in his prime, and of course has already played Little Richard on film. Also, I'm not really even joking about the music biopic cinematic universe. If Hollywood's going to do one or two of these things every year, why not connect them the same way the music scene in the 50s and 60s actually was connected? Sam Cooke, Otis Redding, The Beatles, The Stones, Hendrix, they all performed together, they all hung out together, they all learned to defeat a little Richard. They're all biopic worthy, so why not just make this a series? An early rock and roll Avengers with Little Richard is the Nick Fury who interacts with everyone else, and the Tony Stark who paves the way for everything that comes after. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's cast the rest of the people in Little Richard's life. Now, the most important in the story emotionally, I think, is his father, Bud Pennyman. Stern, disapproving, intimidating, but eventually understanding. I'm only seeing Michael Kenneth Williams, who you know as Omar from The Wire. He's also got music biopic experience as he played Bessie Smith's husband in the HBO movie about her. Do we even need to consider anybody else? You come at the king, you best not miscast. Then this bumps Blackwell, who doesn't really have one big story moment, but as Richard's producer and songwriting partner, is the one steady presence in his life and an important friend and mentor. And in pure storytelling terms, he's somebody to put Richard in conversation with at any point in the movie. I watched some footage of Richard and Bumps interacting. They have a great dynamic where Bumps is the calm, laid-back counterweight to Richard's like high-energy persona. So for my money, nobody has laid back better than Hannibal Burris. His dry, deadpan sense of humor makes him a great straight man, and he deserves more big-screen work, so let's make him a Bumps Blackwell. Now let's talk about the mentor figures that do only make a brief appearance. First of all, their sister Rosetta Tharp. You want someone musical here who's got the kind of energy that would inspire little Richard? So then we have to go with Janelle Monet, who's also more than qualified to headline the Sister Rosetta biopic in our cinematic universe. Now, if you've seen footage of Tharp performing, like the terrific video out there on YouTube for playing Let It Rain on a train platform, the mental picture you have might be a few decades older than Janelle Monet. But remember that footage from 1964, almost 20 years after she met young Richard. She's in her early 30s when our movie's made. So I think Janelle Monet works. Now, Billy Wright was the flamboyant, openly gay performer who lends Richard a lot of his look and stage persona. He's crucial to Richard's development as an artist and as a person, but he's only in the movie briefly, so you need someone who's going to hold the screen and make an impression. I'm thinking Titus Burgess from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and of course the What White Nonsense Is This meme, as we know he can do flamboyant and everything he's in is memorable. Then there's Dorothy Labostri, the songwriter the record label brings in, toned down Tutti Fruity. This doesn't have to be anybody big, it's usually in what one scene, but it's a key scene, because just as Billy Wright showed Richard he can be flamboyant and gay and audiences will accept him if he plays it over the top, Labostri shows him he can win over button-down 1950s audiences if he tones it down just a bit. We talked earlier about that tightrope little Richard walk between being too gay and not gay enough. Wright's on one side of it, Labostri's on the other, and he's able to draw on both of them for balance. Plus, there's a chance to throw in a fun cameo, maybe from a musician with some acting chops. Rihanna, Solange, Queen Latifah. I might go with the Queen here as you want somebody older than Richard to be the mentor, but any one of them could work. And while we're casting musicians, let's cast all those musician cameos in the movie. Big one is Jimi Hendrix. Lakeith Stanfield's one of my favorite actors working, has exactly the right laid-back charm to play Jimmy, and he can handily carry the Hendrix biopic that would have to be the big hit in our eventual cinematic universe. And yes, I know we already had Andre 3000's 2013 Hendrix movie, All's By My Side, but that film wasn't allowed to use Hendrix's music, wasn't widely seen, and Jimmy's story really deserves another shot. For 20-year-old Paul McCartney, my first thought was Tom Holland, mostly because he's English and close to the right age. But he might be too big for a cameo, so what about Lewis Hines from the Netflix A Series of Unfortunate Events? He's also English and about the right age, and also a lot cheaper than Spider-Man. I don't know that we need a lot of screen time for the rest of the Beatles, we really just need that one scene of Paul getting a vocal lesson. Likewise, I'm not sure the Stones need to be that big a part of the story, so any bunch of skinny, bedraggled English guys will do. For Sam Cooke, I'm thinking John Legend, who's as close as a modern equivalent as I could find. He's a little too old to play Cooke in that era, but Legend doesn't really age. Throw a little makeup on him, he'll be great. Now, Otis Redding only lived to be 26, so he was a kid when he backed up Little Richard. Now that I think about it, 
here's where you plug in Caleb McLaughlin from Stranger Things. And then maybe tune to Adepimpe from TV on the radio is Bo Diddley, who doesn't really even have a role in the story, but I'm a fan and he'd be a fun cameo. Maybe have him on stage while there's some backstage drama going on. Now, one question that every music biopic has to face is, do you have the actors sing or lip sync to the records? As far as I know, Brandon Michael Smith does sing Tutti Frutti himself and Get On Up, and I'd love to see Janelle Monae perform Sister Rosetta. So much of the story is about magnetic live performances, so we need to make those performances real. We're not just telling Richard Penman's story, we're telling the story of rock and roll. So that's our movie. Thanks to Nick Zeno from the Department of Tangents podcast for some advice on getting this podcast started, and a Little Richard for inventing rock and roll. If you have any thoughts about how to improve our Little Richard movie or ideas for other movies that need to get made, hit us up on Twitter at Why Is This Not a Movie. You can find my column, Wiki Wormhole, on the AV Club every Sunday. You can order my first novel, Self Destructible, from your local bookstore. Stay safe out there, wear a mask, wash your hands, keep yourself sane, and we'll be back next time on. Why, 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 why is this not a movie? Part of the Subject Podcast Network. Find other lesser podcasts, radio shows, articles, and more at subjectmedia.org.